Welcome out to our Mapletide Summer Study. Glad all of you guys are here. And uh, thanks for joining us. We're excited for this summer and the things that God's put on our heart. As you hopefully know, the theme of our uh, summer study here is faith on mission. And uh, what that looks like is that we're talking about ways that we can live out our faith in our daily lives, how we can engage our faith in the things that we are doing, and how we can get involved in other ways to uh, live out our faith and to share our faith and to uh, uh, just use our faith throughout uh, our lives here and, and be effective in that. And so we want to encourage everybody this summer to be engaged, to be intentional in living out our faith. <clears throat> but also to be uh, challenged to do that in greater ways as well. So uh, we have great opportunities and, and great things uh, going on and, and ways that people can get involved and engaged that you may not even realize. And so we wanted to bring that up and, and get people thinking about how uh, the things that they're doing uh, can be included in uh, their faith, how, how their faith can permeate every aspect of their lives. We want you guys to see that... Uh, uh, you can live out your faith in the places that you are currently and show you other avenues that you can live out your faith as well. So we pray that you're, you're encouraged by that, you're challenged by that, and that you find some uh, great fruit there. So uh, tonight what we wanted to do is start uh, just with the study of uh, what is our mission. Uh, this isn't a, a, a series on missions about going overseas and proclaiming the gospel, although those things are, are wonderful and needed. And we want to encourage everybody to do those things. But this is a series about faith on mission. So it's our faith that we are being missional about. We're, we're being intentional to live out our faith every day. So tonight we're going to talk about the mission expressed. We're going to look at what is our mission. And then in our next study, we're going to look at the mission exhibited as we see Jesus uh, being the one who demonstrated a person on mission. Then we'll talk about our mission equipping, uh, what it is and, uh, to, to be prepared to go and, and do the work that God has called us to. And then we're going to talk about our mission in different settings and, and mission in the home and mission in the community. We're going to talk about uh, using the gifts that God has placed in us in these different environments uh, and living out our mission there. And then we'll talk about uh, extending the mission. Uh, the mission extended, going to other countries and going overseas to the other most parts of the world and how we can be engaged in that. Uh, then as we hit the last couple studies, we'll talk about our, our, in, our mission endurance. How do we endure through the difficult seasons? How do we keep going? How do we keep our focus? And then we'll end up uh, with uh, our mission embarking. Uh, we're going to uh, send everyone out into the world, if you will, and have a special uh, evening where we talk about uh, our sending uh, by God and then our sending of each other in that sense. So we're excited for that. But tonight we are looking at our mission expressed. Uh, what is the mission? Uh, what is our call? And we find that in a passage that's very familiar to many of us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's what we call the Great Commission. And in that, Jesus is giving uh, a commissioning to his disciples of what they should be doing uh, as Jesus departs as Jesus leaves them, what should the disciples be following up with and what should you and I be engaged in? And so he, he gives them this, this decree. He gives them this commissioning. And in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And there we see, first of all, in verse 18, the authority of Jesus. He is the one that has the authority to send us, and we are going in his authority. Not in our own authority, not in our, our church or denominational or any other name, but we're going in the name of Jesus, the one who has authority in heaven and on earth both spiritual and physical authority. He is the sovereign and the supreme one. And so therefore, when we go into the world, when we go into different settings, into different places, we are going with an authoritative role. The one who has full authority has commissioned us to be his ambassadors and to go into this world. And so we can go in confidence and we can go uh, with that understanding of the authority that has sent us. And so we do have a a place in all of these areas that we need to recognize there. And then he gets into what that looks like. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have, or to observe all that I have commanded you. Now there's four main verbs in that uh, verses 19 and 20. (coughs) Uh, And most people read and they look at that and they think that the main action, the main verb is go. That, that we're supposed to go. And so this verse often gets applied to missions, to going overseas, going out in dramatic fashion. But that's not the main verb. Go, baptize, and teach are three helper verbs in this sentence. They're three verbs that, that describe how we are to be doing the main action. The main action is actually the word disciple. In the original Greek, The word make is not in there. So it should be go and disciple. As you are going about your day, be discipling. (laughs) Be engaged in discipling those around you. And as we're going and discipling, we're also baptizing, which is the introduction to the faith. We're introducing people to Christ and initiating them, if you will. We're, we're, We're inviting them into that new covenant promise with Christ through the the rite of baptism. That's what that signifies. And then we're teaching them. We're teaching them the doctrines of the faith, the word of God, where there's an ongoing learning process that occurs once we're believers. And that process of discipleship involves those two things. It involves introducing people to Christ and bringing them to faith in the first place, and then teaching them and training them and walking alongside them as they observe all the things that Christ has taught. So uh, the focus of the commissioning here and the mission that God, that Jesus is giving to his disciples and to his followers is that they are to go about their daily lives. As you're going to the marketplace, as you're going to school, as you're going to work, as you're at home with your family, as you're going to friends' houses for events, if you're going to the neighbor's house, everything that you're doing in your daily life, your daily living, you are to be discipling as you do those things. And so it's not a a call to separate yourself from the world in that sense and to go to the other countries and and do these these big things. Some people are called to that, not all. And so many people are called to their communities at home, to their their local places, to have what we call secular jobs, to have uh, lives that that are not uh, full-time ministry pay, but they're full-time ministry in the sense that Christ has placed you there for the purpose of representing him and being a light to those around you. And so this great commission is a commission to all of us 
to serve the Lord where we are. As you go to places, you are to be mindful and thinking about how you can represent Christ, how you can share Christ, how you can teach others about Christ and follow him in those settings. And it's not a formal position. It's not a formal title. Uh, There's no uh, recognition for many of these things. But as you are doing these things, you are representing God. When you go to work and you are a faithful, hard worker and you are diligent and doing your job well and doing all of these things with joy and loving those around you, you are a representative of Christ. And those around you are watching you and you have a chance to share with them and represent what a Christian looks like in the workplace. You are, in essence, discipling people through that process. As you go to school and do the same, as you go to uh, other places around your community, every chance you have, you are representing Christ in those places. And so you're fulfilling the Great Commission by simply living the life that the Lord has given you in the places that he has put you, and you're representing Christ, speaking his words and living out uh, obedience to his commands and asking others to do the same. And that is a, a life of discipleship. You are now teaching and training others as you're living with them and doing those things. So I want to get out of the mindset that ministry happens at church or ministry happens when we go overseas and we're doing formal ministry things. Ministry happens every moment. Every moment of your life is a ministry opportunity. Every person that comes your way is an opportunity to minister, to encourage, to share the love of Christ with somebody. And if we are able to direct our minds and and think differently about these settings, we're going to find opportunities in each one of them to uh, represent Christ, to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and make disciples in every place that we go. And that's our our challenge and our encouragement this summer, is that we have that mindset, that this is my mission first and foremost above all else. As I go to work, yes, I want to be a faithful employee. Yes, I want to work hard. Yes, I want to earn the paycheck. I'd love to earn more pay, whatever those things are. I'd like the promotion and all that good stuff. But first and foremost, I'm a representative of Christ. And all of those other things are God's provision for me. And so uh, I, I've got to prioritize the mission of Christ above these other things that may be provided through these settings and are very good things. But first and foremost, I'm, a, on, I'm on a mission of my faith to live out my faith before those around me. And so that's uh, the, the great commission call to each of us that we want to challenge Uh, each one of us to this summer is that we're living out this faith that Christ has given to us and we're able to live that out in the places that he has put us currently. Now we can ask, okay, so our job is to make disciples. Now, what does that look like? I mean, obviously we're to baptize and, and to teach, we're to introduce people to the faith and then to teach them what Christ had said. But how do I know if I'm doing this? How do I, how do I know if I, first of all, am being a disciple, that I'm uh, living and, and walking in the way that Christ has called me? And then how do I uh, put some earmarks or put some, some characteristics uh, that I can identify when this is happening successfully? Well, that's a great question. And we're going to look at six attributes that we can use to kind of mark uh, our lives and the lives of others that would give indications that we are on a path of discipleship. Now, there are three negative attributes and three positive attributes we're going to look at here. Uh, In Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at three negative aspects. And these are stories that Jesus was telling about individuals that came and wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus had a response to them, and each one of them missed the mark in some way. 
they were not able to be disciples because they failed in some ways. So we're going to look at these three negative attributes, three things that they uh, did not possess, uh, that they did not demonstrate, that, that disqualified them from discipleship. And we want to consider our lives in light of this. So in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57, it says that as they were going along the road, someone said to him, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this is a bold statement that this young man makes. He says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And and I I believe that many of us have had that heart, that desire, Lord, I'm all in. I want to go. I want to be 100% with you. I'm going to follow you, God. Whatever you want me to do, I'm in. We've all come to that point. Perhaps that it was an emotional response. Uh, perhaps it was a genuine uh, desire at that time. But that desire waves and, and fades because what this man had, he had security here in the things of this earth. Now, Jesus is saying here, as a disciple, our security cannot be in earthly things. We're to have no earthly security. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have bank accounts or that we don't uh, save up, that we don't prepare, that we don't have permanent homes or these sort of things. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But our security is not in those things. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, uh, we have the same story uh, described there. And there, this young man that comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you, he's identified as a scribe. So this is a religious person who knows the word, who's uh, effective and, and could be useful. But Jesus says your, your identity, your, your hope is in this is that you're going to find security. He says, I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't even have, I don't know where I'm going every night in that sense. I, I don't have the security of a, uh, of a home every night, uh, of a comfortable life to, to offer. And he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to abandon the earthly security. You've got to not look at these things of the earth and the pleasures and comforts of this earth as a secure thing for you, but you've got to be willing to abandon them and step out. You've got to be willing to put these things on the line and go where God calls you to go, not knowing how that's going to play out. And so it's not an easy road. This is not a get-rich-quick thing. You're not jet-setting around the world. You're not going through uh, your community with big crowds around you, staying in fine hotels and all these sort of things. Jesus himself gave us the example, as we'll talk about next time, where he, he stepped out of glory. And he took on humility, the, the, the life of a servant. And, and he exchanged his wealth for great pro- poverty. He exchanged his security, the heavenly security, for the insecurity of earth and of humanity. He exchanged his rulership, his sovereignty, for servanthood. And so this great king of glory, the creator of the universe, had no place to lay his head. Talk about someone who uh, was willing to take that humble position and put himself on the line and have no security here in the things of earth, but his security was in the Father. His security was in the mission that the Father had given him. His, his security was in his heavenly identity. He, he was not wrapped up in making a name for himself here on this earth, but he was wrapped up in fulfilling the mission that God had called him for. Now, this is not saying that we can expect no security, that, that, that you know, there's, there's, there's great security in following Jesus, but the, the goal is not the accumulation of earthly things, of homes or money, jobs, or any of this other stuff. We're not building treasures here on earth to make our life more comfortable and more stable. Our treasure is in heaven. 
Our desire is to honor Jesus rather than build up our kingdom. And God, as we do that, promises to be our provider. If we seek him above all other earthly securities, he promises to take care of us. Matthew chapter 16, verses 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Doesn't sound like a very secure thing. But, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Much more secure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we find security and comfort and, and things in our earthly possessions, those are very insecure because they're going to they're gonna be destroyed. They're going to they're gonna fade away. Uh, they're going to be stolen from us, whatever the case may be. But those heavenly treasures are, are, are built up and stored for us. And then Matthew chapter 6, a few verses later, verses 25 through 33, he, he talks about how God will provide for you and care for you. He says in verse 20, uh, 25, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So there's something greater that you were called to than satisfaction of your flesh, than the appearance that you can put out there. He says, look at the birds, look at the lilies. God takes care of all of these things. You know, if God closed the, the grass of the field in verse 30, uh, how much more is he going to close you? clothe you. Uh, so don't worry about these things. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink and all that? You know, for all these things that Gentiles seek after, but your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But you, verse 33, here it is. You need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. So our security is in God as our provider. God is our caretaker. God is the one who meets our needs. Not the job providing enough money to meet our needs, but God providing the job that will provide the money. And if God doesn't provide the job that provides the finances, God will provide in some other way. God is a faithful God, and those are his promises towards us that he will take care of us if we're seeking him first. And our security is in him. So that first mark of a disciple is that we have no earthly security. Our, our hope does not rest in our 401k or our bank accounts or any of these things. Our hope rests in that we serve and know the God of the universe. Now, the second one that we see here is in the next couple verses, verses uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 59 and 60. We see a second person coming up to Jesus, and it says there, to another, he said, Jesus, he said, follow me. So this, this young man is now invited, come with me, Jesus says, follow me, be my disciple, walk with me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not disqualified. You can still be a, a servant, but you're not going to follow in the same way. Now, here, here's what he's saying. The, the, the man's request seems pretty reasonable. You know, let me go and bury my father. I've got to, let me, let me finish my responsibility there that, you know, I've got to take care of this. Uh, is Jesus being cruel? Is he being, uh, you know, unfaithful even to scripture? This man wants to honor his father. That sounds like a godly thing to do. But here, Jesus is calling this man, here's the second mark of a disciple, is a follower of Jesus, a disciple is to have no earthly ties. There should be no relationship on earth that holds us back from following God. 
In the days of this man, when Jesus called him to follow me, it was most likely that this man's father was still alive. It's not that his father had just passed away and he needed to deal with that and then he's freed up to come. The father was probably still alive and the man would have had responsibility for his family, uh, you know, even up until his father died. And at death, this man would have received the inheritance from his father. And then from that point, he had been free to do what he wanted to with those goods and stuff. And so what the man was saying was, let me live out my family life. Let me do these things. Let me receive my inheritance. Let me get all of this settled. Let me order my life in that way. Then I can turn my attention to you, Jesus, and to the mission you want to send me on. So I want to I want to take care of these earthly matters and get my earth secured and settled and, and my familial relationships in order before I start following you. And then I'm freed up for you. But Jesus says, hey, you know what? The dead can bury their own. So if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, if you're going to be his disciple, then the claims of his kingdom must come before anything and anyone else. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 38, it says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, it's not saying that we don't love our mother and father or we don't love our son and daughter, but when they take priority, they become the God in our life. They become an idol when they take that place of the throne and we put give them greater uh, prominence than the Lord in our own lives. And so we need to put the Lord first and his mission before anything and anyone else. And that's what this man failed to do. Uh, An account that I love out of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 24, verses 15 through 18. Uh, Ezekiel's life was a very unique life. He he, uh, lived out his ministry by exemplifying these messages where he would lie on one side for over a year and then he'd flip over and lie on the other and it was a message to the people and he always had a physical demonstration of his message that that cost him great things and what we realize about Ezekiel is that he's a married man he has a wife that stood by him through all of this through all of the weird things that he was doing through all of these messages through all of the sacrifice And it tells us in Ezekiel 24, verses 15 through 18, it says, Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead, bind your turban on your head, and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips, and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. And so the Lord is basically saying in those verses, hey, Ezekiel, I'm going to remove something from your life. This is called the desire of your eyes. This is the thing that you are uh, probably most passionate about in this life beside me. So I'm I'm going to remove that from you as an example to the people. The mission of God is that Ezekiel, you are going to suffer and that's going to be a message to the people. And Ezekiel... I would imagine if I were in that situation, I would say, Lord, no, uh, this is where I draw the line. You, you can't have that. You can't do this. There's got to be a different way. But in verse 18, Ezekiel says, so I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening, my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. 
And right there we see the heart of Ezekiel, that even though the Lord is doing this thing, the mission of God, the faith expressed by Ezekiel in that passage is astounding. The mission of God takes priority. I followed the Lord. Even though something happened that I didn't want, the relationship with my wife was secondary to my relationship and call from God. Ezekiel loved his wife. She was the desire of his eyes, but he was willing to put God above even that relationship. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And it's what we're saying is the second mark of a disciple is that our desire to follow God, to fulfill his mission, to fulfill his call, to live out that life that he's called us to is priority. It's, it's first and foremost. Another example in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, says that when uh, when he departed from there, when he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, this is uh, Elijah coming, uh, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. And then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. So the same thing we're seeing with this young man here. Let me go and take care of my parents. Let me go say my goodbyes. Let me deal with these arrangements. Then I'm all yours. And then Elijah responds to him and he said to him, he said, hey, go back. What have I done to you? This, I'm sorry, that, that was not the answer that I was hoping for. So verse 21, Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. And he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So what Elisha did is instead of going back and kissing his father and mother and saying goodbye and setting his affairs in orders, he went back, broke apart the yoke, broke apart the tools of his trade, slaughtered the oxen so he had nothing left to go back to. He abandoned all of those things and put them completely out of the picture, arose and followed Elijah, became his servant, and was committed to the ministry of God and made it so that there was nothing to return to. God had priority in that setting. Then lastly, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 4, it says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And so we've got to be able to separate from the things of this world, even those most intimate personal relationships. We've got to put the ministry of God above those things. Now, this in no way is calling us to minimize those relationships or to, uh, to, to not love our spouses, to love our families or those sort of things, to not be faithful husbands, faithful wives. It's not calling us to those things, but it's calling us to put God above even those things, to put God first. God has to have that priority that, that uh, even before our, our, our lives are in order, even before all of the inheritance is received and our finances and, and all of those things, we're to follow Christ. So the first attribute there is we are to have no earthly security. The second attribute is that we're to have no earthly ties. A third attribute we see in Luke chapter 9, verse 61 and 62, where he says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, this seems reasonable. And just as we read with Elisha, it seems good. Let me go back and say my goodbyes. Let me go back and, and, and bid farewell to that life so that I can be all yours. But... The idea is, is that let me go back and, and, and deal with all of this stuff. Let me go back and, and 
reach back and, and keep my grasp on some of these things so that I can be ready to go. But Jesus says, you know what? When you set your hand to the plow, if you look back, you're, you're not going to plow in a straight line. And the, the third attribute that we're looking at here is that the follower of Jesus, the disciple, has no earthly distractions. So there, there are these things that, that can distract us from the mission. That rather than looking forward at the path that we're on and where God is taking us and what God is doing with us, we can look back over our shoulder at what we once had. We can look back at what was there before. And when we do that, our body tends to turn and our, instead of plowing a straight line, we plow, we plow crookedly. We, we, we are, the plow goes back and forth. It doesn't dig properly and it's not effective. So when our, our focus is on these things that we've had, and let me, let me go and say goodbye to those things. Let me push those things off. Let me, let me set those things aside first. Jesus says, no, once you start following me, you got to be all in. You can't look back. You, you, you've got to count the cost and, and then come and follow me. What, what the man was saying, he says, Lord, I will follow you, but... What that but indicates there is that he's saying that there's something of a more urgent and greater need than the immediate surrender to Christ. So I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm all in, but there's something that takes priority first. And that can be many different things for each of us. And I I would pray that you consider in your life, what is that but in your life? Lord, I'll follow you, but... Let me, let me just get my bank account secured. Let me go and get my degree first. Let me, uh, you know, make sure I get this done first. I need that degree. I need, I need this thing taken care of first. Anything that follows that, that but there is something that is more urgent and greater than following Christ. And this is what Jesus says, is if you're going to set your hand to the plow, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, there can't be anything after that. I'm going to follow you, period, end of sentence. Not I'll follow you, but let me do these things first. Let me get this all settled first. There's a, an unconditional sur- immediate surrender to Christ that needs to take place. In Luke chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, we get a lot of excuses of why people can't come to the feast. In verse 18, it says, But they uh, all with one accord began to make excuses. They were invited to come and sup with the king, with the father. And this is a, a picture of being invited to that relationship with Christ, to come and fellowship with Christ. But they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, Oh, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go see to it. And I ask that you have me excused. Another said, Oh, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. Oh, I ask that you have me excused. And still another said, Well, I've married a wife. And so I'm sorry, I just can't come. All of these were excuses of why people can't follow Christ, why they can't be engaged. Well, I've got, I've got work to see to. I've got investments I've got to attend to. I've got a, a family. I've got a wife. I've, I've got all of these other things that take priority over you, Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is a true disciple has nothing in front of Christ himself. Christ is first and foremost. And one of the great Examples from the Old Testament, Luke 19, 26, as Lot was coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah, his wife looked back behind her and she became a pillar of salt. And so she looks back, she longs for the way things were, she's still attached to those things and was not able to fully follow what God was doing in them. And so we want to really put Christ first. It's uh, C.H. Spurgeon who said that the claims of Christ are such and the power of Christ is such that everything which comes after the but needs to be resolutely put out of the life. You cannot add to that but anything which is justifiable in the light of the claims of Christ, in the light of your own deep need, in the light of the ability of Christ. 
And so, uh, Lord, I'll follow you, but there's nothing that can come after that that is justifiable in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of what you need, and in, life, and in light of what Christ would want to do in your life. And so we've got to be careful not to put anything in that place. And so we've got to consider that, that our things of this world can drown out our walk with God. So we've got to have no earthly security. Our security is not in the things of this earth. We've got to have uh, no earthly ties. Even our relationships and, and the things that we're doing on this earth can't take priority over Christ. And we're to have no earthly distractions. There's nothing we should be looking back that would hinder us from fully following after God uh, in all that we do and, and all that we're doing. And so we need to follow him wholeheartedly and we need to follow him with all that we have. And so Luke chapter 9 there gives us three negative attributes. No earthly uh, security, no earthly uh, ties, and no earthly distractions. That Those three things would mark a disciple. We're sold out 100% for Christ. But what about the positives? What are some things that I could look at and say, these are positive attributes that God is doing in my life that indicate that I am a disciple? In John chapter 8 verse 31, Jesus is talking there. He's, he's talking to the Jews. He's been describing how he is the truth. He's the light that they uh, are able to follow. And he's giving an indication that they need to follow him. And uh, he does incredible things in their life. And so in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and the truth you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if you abide in my word, that's the, the positive thing. A disciple is going to abide in the word of Christ. And the word abide literally means to continue, to hold fast, to keep or to remain, to continually be at home in. If you're living in my word and you're doing what it says and you're you're living this out, you're you're comfortable and welcomed in the word of God. Now, the word of God can afflict us. The word of God can challenge us. But it's something that we feel at home and comfortable in. We look to the word when we need comfort. We look to the word when we need direction. We look to the word as our guide and our, our, our source. And that's what it means to abide in that. When I come into my house here, I, I, I'm comfortable. I know my house. I know where I can go. I, I've got greater liberties to use the things of my house. I know how to use the things in my house. I know where to find the things in my house. And so there's a security that comes by abiding in my house. And in the same way, the word of God, we have a security in abiding in it. We are familiar with it. We're comfortable with it. We have learned where to find things in it. We've grown in it and we're living in it. And it becomes a part of us. It becomes our identity there. People begin to recognize the word in us. And so we're free to move in that. Now, Psalm 119 is an incredible chapter of the Bible all about the word of God. But just a few verses from there in verses uh, verse 11, it says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It speaks about memorizing the word of God, hiding it in our heart because it's going to affect the way that we live. In verses 15 and 16, it says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So I'm going to meditate and contemplate and delight myself in these things that they're going to be a, a source of joy for me and something that I'm doing continually, something that I'm engaging in. 
And then verses 43 through 48, it says, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in your ordinances. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings, and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So this speaks of just the, the, the desire for the word that a disciple will have. And now we don't always desire it. It is work. It is a discipline to get into the word. It takes time and effort, but it's something that a disciple of Christ longs for because in the word of God, it's living and active and it, it ministers to us. The word of God ministers as the Holy Spirit of God speaks through the word and teaches us and trains us and encourages us and strengthens us and washes and purifies us. And so a disciple of God, a disciple of Christ desires the word of God to live in the word and have the word living in them. And so it's very important there that that we have that positive attribute that the word of God is important to us and it's something that we desire and we long for and we look forward to being in the word individually and corporately. This is something that we do together there. So that first positive attribute there is that you abide in the word of God. And by doing this, you're going to know you're my disciples. Now in John chapter 13, a few pages over, we see a second positive attribute. In chapter 13, verse 35, it says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, this comes in a greater context of discussion here, beginning in verse 31. It says, When Jesus had gone out... They were in the upper room setting there where they were having that final meal. It says, when Jesus had gone out, he said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. In other words, you, the path is not prepared yet for you. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus said, I gave you the example, now you're to follow it. You're to love in the same way that I loved. And he says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So your love for other people is a testimony of your discipleship of Christ. And so we see the result of those who abide in the word of God, who see his example, hear his teaching. The result should be demonstrated in our life through love for other people. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that we are in him. So as we keep his word, the love of God is demonstrated in our lives when we know that we're following God. Love is an essential mark of a Christian. It's the greatest uh, you know, uh, fruit. It's the first in the, in the list of the fruits in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, it's considered greater than all of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. That uh, if you have all of these gifts and you do all these mighty things, but you don't have love, you're clanging symbols. Uh, love is the very demonstration of the character of God in 1 John 4, 8. Uh, and, and we love uh, because we've received that from God. That's the way God's treated us. God has loved us, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. So uh, God has demonstrated love for us. It, it, it's been said that the commandments of the law, 
There are 613 Old Testament commandments that Moses gave and that were laid out through Exodus and Leviticus and so on. And so those 613 commandments have been an expression of God's love for the people because through those commandments, he was giving parameters and direction and guidance so that the people could have all that God desired for them to have, all of the blessing all of the favor, all of the promises could be fulfilled for them. And so it was an expression of God's love to give parameters and guidance direction in the same way that a father loves a child and puts parameters and guidance for that child. And so uh, in Micah, it tells us that he has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord desires of thee, that you would love justice and mercy and walk holy with your God. And so he's, he's narrowed down those commandments to three things. Then as we get Jesus in, in the Gospels, he says, you know, the, the, the scribe comes to him and asks, what are the greatest commandments? What, what is the greatest? And Lord, he says, well, there's two. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So 613 commandments of the law broke down in Micah to the three commandments, broke down by Jesus to two, love God and love others. And then in Galatians chapter 3, we see Paul narrowing it down to just one word. It's all summed up in this one thing, love. If you simply had love, if you love God first and foremost, above all other things, you give him your allegiance and, and truly genuinely love him, you're going to follow him and you're going to obey him and you're going to do all those things. And that's going to extend into a love for other people. And when you love other people, you speak the truth to them. You care about them. You care for their good and their benefit, even if it costs you something. And so the, the disciple here, they're going to know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Those who are unlovely, those who are difficult to love, those who are in sin, they need to be loved. And we, as the disciples of Christ, as those who are being discipled, need to demonstrate that love. That love is only possible as the Holy Spirit fills us and lives out the love of God through us. We are not naturally loving. And so as a disciple, you're being filled by the word of God as you're making yourself available to that. And the Holy Spirit indwells you and lives out the love of God through you. It's the mark of the Holy Spirit. It's the mark of the work of God in us, the mark of discipleship. So we're abiding in his word. We're loving that we have uh, love for one another is that second mark of a disciple. And then finally, the sixth mark of a disciple, the third positive mark of a disciple is found uh, just two chapters later in John chapter 15, uh, verse 8. And in this section, Jesus is talking about staying connected to the vine. The branch that gets disconnected from the, the vine loses out on the nutrients and cannot continue to grow, and it ends up drying up and, and not being able to bear fruit. And so he's, he's giving us that instruction to stay connected with God himself being the vine. We need to stay attached to the vine and attached to that. And in verse 8, he says, But by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. So the result of a disciple... We see a disciple hungering for the word of God and abiding in and living in the word of God. We see a disciple demonstrating the love of God to those around him. And then the result of this, we see a byproduct that's produced in the life of a disciple, which is fruit. Now, fruit is not something that can be manufactured. It can't be produced by sweat and effort. Fruit is a natural production by the nature of the tree, if we're going to go back to that. So if we look at a tree, you don't see an apple tree working hard and trying to squeeze out apples. Apple trees just produce apples by their nature. It's what an apple tree does. For us, as 
disciples of Christ, we don't have to force fruit from our lives. It's a natural byproduct of the work of God in us. And so this is the natural result of discipling. The one who is abiding in God's word, the one who is loving others, there's going to be a result. The one who's placing Christ as supreme over all things, there's going to be a result that we see in their lives. Now, when we talk about this, many people often think of fruit as these big dramatic things. We're going to see these radical changes. We're going to see these radical works of God through them. But fruit doesn't have to be dramatic. Fruit can be a simple change in perspective. It can be the change in the way we look at something, the change in our affection, a change in uh, a habit that we have. Uh, it can be victory over a sin that we've struggled in. It, it's Those are all fruit. Fruit also can be uh, the reaching out to other people, and we're going to see results because of that. We're going to see other people affected around us. The, the fruit can take many different parameters and many different uh, avenues there. In uh, chapter 15 of John here, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So again, you are not producing the fruit. It's as you are making yourself uh, wholly available, you're committing yourself to the work of Christ, and he's doing this work through you. You're abiding in his word, loving others. He does this work through you. He does all of these things in you there. And so the fruit is the byproduct of the tree itself. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20, talks to uh, the disciples there about how you can know a true prophet from a false prophet. And he says there that you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and therefore by their fruits you will know them. So you can have people that are abiding in the word, that are seemingly acting out of love towards others, but you don't know the motive of their heart. You don't know what God is doing inside of them. And if they are not truly surrendered to God, even though they have an outward appearance of goodness, their fruit is going to eventually reveal what's in their hearts. And they're eventually going to live out their nature. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, it says, Either make the tree good and its root good, or else make the tree bad and its root bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. So your your result of your discipleship, as a disciple of Christ, you should be seeing fruit, fruit of uh, a life lived with God, fruit of uh, oncoming victory, fruit of a changed mind and a changed life that now affects the way that we live. These fruits can be small or they could be great, but we begin to see things, uh, positive fruits come out. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He's talking to the Jews there who put their security and their hope in the fact that they were genealogically related to Abraham. We are children of the covenant, so it doesn't matter what we do. But Jesus is saying, bear fruits worthy of repentance. You've gone the wrong way. You've sinned. And the fruits of repentance means that you've turned and now changed the way that you're doing things. You're working towards living the life that you ought to be living rather than just putting your hope in an identity that's not eternal. 
And so there's fruit that is demonstrated there. The fruit is the, the result, the response, the outward working of these things. And then in Colossians 1 verse 10, it tells us to be fruitful in every good work. It says, you know, he's, he's, Paul is speaking there to the believers and he says that you may be worthy, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So again, everything that you're doing, you're walking in the Lord daily. Your, your faith is on mission in all that you're doing and you're being fruitful in all of those works that you're doing. Every good work from uh, the way you conduct yourself in your home to your school, to your neighborhood, to your your workplace, all of these things, you're seeing fruit as you're representing and demonstrating God. And so this is our call is that we are called to have our faith on mission in every day of our lives. And as we go through this series, we're going to be talking about applying that mission to every aspect. How do we live out this faith? How do we live out this mission that God has placed us on that we can disciple others in every place that we go and everything that we do? How can we be prepared to do that and equipped to do that and able to do that throughout our lives? So I'm excited for this summer with everybody. Um, uh, thanks for coming out again. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue this each week. Have a great time together. Have some barbecue and just enjoy good fellowship as well as we can encourage one another through all of this. So uh, thanks for coming out tonight. And uh, we will see you guys all next time.